the Lord may say something different next week, and we may continue in the series. Amen? But this morning, we want to uh, turn our attention uh, to a passage that most of us have heard before. It's John chapter number four. The last time we taught on this passage, we focused specifically on worship. Um, But today we want to focus on a different element of the passage. John chapter number four. We're going to be in verses one through 15. You can let me know you have it by saying amen. And the scripture declares, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was uh, from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. But his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink of water from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that you are saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us uh, the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give, him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Uh, Just for a few moments, I want to speak or preach from the subject title, A Model for Ministry Outside of the Church. A Model for Ministry Outside the Church. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for... The blessing that you give us uh, to hear your word. God, I thank you even this week as I spent time praying that you brought us back to this idea of ministry. God, I thank you for those of us who have placed our faith and our trust in you. God, because in doing that, God, you have secured our soul for eternity. It's also true, God, that even though you have secured our soul for eternity, you made made a decision to leave us here. God, you left us here for a purpose. God, you left us here to fulfill a mission. God, so help us catch a vision today. God, help us see a compelling picture that moves us to action today. That reminds us, God, that that we got to do more than just come inside the four walls. God, as I pray, there are thousands of people in a two-mile radius of our church who are unsaved, who are unchurched, who are undiscipled. God, I'm so thankful for everyone who is here. 
God, I pray that we would be thankful for one another, God, but I also pray that we would reflect and we would consider, God, how you are calling us to leave the pew so that we can reach people. God, help us today, God, to see that, yes, we are to minister to one another, God, but we are also to minister to those who do not know you. God, help us to see that. And God, help us to respond and act in faith. It's your name I pray. Amen. So this uh, past July, I had to go see my doctor uh, for my annual checkup. Um, anybody who's done it knows that usually uh, once you get a past a certain age, you have to do uh, some fasting blood work before you see the doctor. So the week before, um, I went in, I did my blood work, and then I had to go see my doctor. And if I'm honest, as I was approaching uh, the appointment, I was a little nervous. Uh, I knew I had been enjoying some fine dining. I knew I had been... Uh, <laughs> enjoying uh, the blessings of uh, being a pastor. So many of you all want to feed me and take me to dinner. And Brother Jamie slid some in my pocket to take my wife out to, to dinner this week. I appreciate you, bro. I'm very thankful for that. But as I approached the appointment, I was worried because I'm like, this is going to be the one where I get the bad report. I got into the uh, appointment. I prayed, uh, maybe even asked the Lord to show me a little grace as I was walking into the appointment. <laughs> And as my doctor began to go through my numbers, it was amazing. Like, every one of my numbers was lower than the, for my age. Like, every one of my numbers was right in line. And he said, Thomas, you are healthy. Initially, I was like, it's like, you sure? Like, let me, let me check the Social Security number to make sure that it's the right guy, right? But then I, I, I had to stop and reflect and thank the Lord. But then we had a conversation. He said, well, Thomas, you're doing well now. But he said, if you stay at that weight, if you continue, to eating, if you continue eating how you eat, if you continue living how you live, there's going to be a problem soon. He said, people in your family have an issue with diabetes, high blood pressure. People have issues with heart disease. And he says, Thomas, if you don't catch it now, you're going to have to pay for it later. Truth of the matter is, uh, in America... Uh, many people deal with the issue of heart disease. When you think about heart disease, uh, one of the issues that accompanies a heart disease is something called an enlarged heart. Uh, usually when a person has an enlarged heart, uh, the doctor tells them that the enlarged heart is not um, a disease, it is an indication of another disease. It's an indication or it's simply a symptom of a condition. Uh, anytime a person has an enlarged heart, it's, in, it's indicating that something is having an impact on the body. It could be their diet, it could be their lack of exercise, it could even be their genetics, but anytime a doctor sees that a person has an enlarged heart, they know that something else critical is going on inside the body. When we think about an enlarged heart uh, in terms of our health, uh, that's a bad thing. But when you think about God enlarging your heart, that is a great picture of what God wants to do in our faith. When you go to Mark chapter number 12, verse 30, it says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is essentially reminding us that we need our hearts enlarged. We need to get to a place in our life where the Lord does a work inside of our heart. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you need a heart for God. You need a heart of worship. You need to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. But he also says, you need to be able to love your neighbors as yourself. And while I was planning to start a new series today, I wanted to share this sermon on ministry because if I'm being honest, I see a a significant weakness in our church. I just want to be honest with you as our pastor. I see a weakness, and that's something that we got to address. Now, let me affirm before I start critiquing our church. When you think about our church, I really do believe we have cultivated a church where we have people who love God. I am so moved by so many people who are here who have a, a real relationship with God, and they are really serious about growing in their faith. We also have a, a church congregation that does a phenomenal job of loving people. Uh, one of the consistent things that we hear about our church is when people come here, they feel love. When people come here, they feel like they are a part of a family. And while I uh, must confess that as a pastor, it brings my heart joy when I see members of our body connecting with each other. It fires me up when I see families having meals together. It, it encourages me when I see uh, families bringing in college students. It encourages me when the men of our church get together. It encourages me when the women of our church get together. It encourages me so much when I see us doing life together. But I got to say something more. It's not enough for us to do that well in this context without taking what we experience here and taking it to our community. I believe that we love God and I do believe we love our members well But what about the church folks? Well, what about the folks who don't come to church? Yes, there is room to grow in loving God. There's room for us to grow in loving each other. But I don't want to be satisfied with just loving God and just loving the people in this building while neglecting those who are outside of the building. I want us to consider that that we need to wrestle with what does ministry look like to the least and the less? Like, what does ministry look like to those who are far from God? What does ministry look like uh, to those uh, who have no church background, who have no church connection, who do not have a relationship with God? Like, what are we doing to leave this building to reach people who are far from the Lord? When I think about it, please do not hear me. Please do not have the mindset that this is about numbers. Uh, But this is about ministry. When I think about the, the, the idea that I'm expressing, I can almost hear somebody saying, well, well, preacher, didn't Jesus spend more time with the disciples? 
And in the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, in the church for Christians, in the church for believers, and I will tell you, absolutely, Jesus spent the majority of his time with his disciples, and the church is not for unbelievers, the church is for believers. Uh, An unbeliever cannot be a part of the church because you must be born into the church. But here's the truth. As a believer, we must love people outside of the church because in loving people outside of the church, we are giving a witness and an invitation to those who have not had a relationship with Christ. When I think about it, I love this church. I love our body. I love uh, how people um, who are different and diverse are coming together But as I pray about our our ministry, as I pray about our city, now I, I I want you to hear me now. As I pray about our city and the people who are here in Athens who are unchurched. I'm not talking about Africa. I'm not talking about North Korea. I'm speaking about Athens, Georgia. When I think about our city, when I think about the place we live, the place we work, and I think about how many people are doing life apart from Christ, it breaks my heart, and I hope it should break your heart too. When I think about the need for uh, ministry in the community, it reminds me that I need to extend an offer, and I need to make it a possibility for people who are far from God to connect with God. Now, please do not hear me saying that it is your responsibility to save people. That is not what I am preaching this morning. But I am saying as a church body, we need to wrestle with how do we leave the pew and how do we reach out to people? Like I know everybody in here is not a full-time minister, full-time preacher, but, but every member is a minister, And every member is planted in a different place with people who are far from God. And are we taking serious the opportunity that we have to tell people about Jesus? I'm convinced that we have a great church. I'm convinced that the Lord has allowed me to lead a church that I do not deserve. When I I look around this room, it is evident that the Lord has been greater and more gracious to me than I deserve. When I think about this building, when I think about our ministry, when I think about life change that has happened in our congregation, it is evident to me that the Lord has done so much that if he does not do anything else, he has done more than enough. But as I pray about our church, as I pray about the ministry of our church, what gets me excited is not more numbers in terms of more people or a larger budget. When I think about our church, what gets me excited is seeing the next Jake. I look back at Jake Palm and I see a brother who I love deeply, who I do life with, who I care for, who, who has been a huge blessing to my life. I get excited about reaching the next Jake reaching the next Bob, reaching the next Patrick, reaching the next Karen, reaching the next Avita. It's not about us having more numbers. It is about a ministry that is focused on proclaiming God's glory and seeing people transformed by God's grace. Do not hear me talking about growing numerically, I'm saying that this is a part of us growing spiritually where the Lord allows us to be salt and light to our city.
When I think about how our church is situated, it kind of sits up on a hill. That's, it's a powerful picture of what the church should be. We should be a lighthouse. We should be a place where people who are far from God, who are unsaved, who are unchurched, who are unconnected, we should be, we should be that, that presence in this community where we are leaving this building and we are seek, seeking to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Not seeking to save anybody, because here's the truth. You can save yourself. You cannot save anybody. But God has called us to leave the four walls of this building and give people an opportunity to hear the good news. The reason why I preached on, well, the reason why I picked this passage today is when you look at um, John chapter number four, it really does paint a powerful picture of how can we practically do ministry outside of the four walls of the church. Now, to really understand or really appreciate chapter number four, I think we need to see or consider what happened in chapter number three. I love chapter three and four in context because it gives us an example how to serve two different kinds of people who have the same kind of need. And when you think about chapter number three, we have the story of uh, the scholar Nicodemus. Um, in chapter number four, we have a woman at the well. One is named while the other is unnamed. One is a man, the other is a woman. One is a Jew, the other is a Samaritan. In chapter number three, we have a man who is respected well in his community. In chapter number four, we have a woman who is seen as an outcast and immoral. In one encounter, we have uh, taking place at night and the next during the day. And while uh, there are many differences between chapter number three and chapter number four, there are more similarities in the text than there are differences. One of the, the, the major lies that Satan tries to tell us is that we have more differences than we have things that bring us together. Satan is the author of confusion. He's the father of lies. And he tells us uh, that we are different and we have different needs. That is a lie. Historically, we've looked at the Samaritan woman as a woman who was more in need of God's grace. It's a lie. If you think that anybody in this room or in this city or in this world is in more need of grace than you, you are lying to yourself. If you ever get to a place in your life where you look down at people just because they are not in church or even if they have a different religion, if you think that their need for God is greater than yours, you are lying and deceiving yourself. I love the passage because it, it, it really does paint the picture that, that they were both, in chapter number three and chapter number four, they were both in need of a savior. They were both in need of God's grace. They were both in need of the same thing. And when you think about them being in the need of the same thing, it reminds us that no matter your gender or your social standing or your race, uh, it doesn't matter what side of, of the tracks you were born on, doesn't matter how close you think you are to God, what we all need is the same love that can only be found in Christ. What we all need is the same forgiveness. What we all need is the same restoration, the same transformation, the same illumination, the same justification. What we all need is how, what we, what we all need is for Christ to meet us exactly where we are. It's selfish for us. So I, want you to, I want you to feel the weight of that word. It's selfish for us to have our needs met 
and know that people are looking to have needs met and we don't tell them nothing about where we got our needs met. Uh, one of my, um, if you've been here a while, you know I enjoy TV. Uh, one of my favorite shows of all time is Martin. Uh, please do not hear your pastor encouraging you to watch Martin. But I'm confessing, I watch Martin, right? One of my favorite Martin shows is uh, uh, the entire crew, they go camping. And uh, Cole loses uh, the map, they get lost. And um, it's, it's kind of funny, like they're walking around and they're hungry. And uh, there's a part of the show where Martin, he has a Snickers in his pocket. And Martin kind of like tiptoes away from everybody and he's eating. And then Pam hears the rapper. And Pam's like, well, why don't you share it with us? And then he eats the rest of the Snickers so he doesn't have to share with everybody. Essentially, that's kind of how we do life spiritually. Like, we, we are around people who have the same need as us. We are around people who are, who are lost like we were. We are around people who are searching for answers, and we just, to ourselves, eating a snicker, enjoying life. How many Sundays have we come here and we have enjoyed fellowship? We've been encouraged by somebody. Somebody's pulled us to the side and prayed for us. And we know somebody who needs to be prayed for, but we hadn't told them about the church. How, how many times have somebody invested in our kids, in the kids' ministry? We need to be praying for those who work in the kids' ministry. It's significant what they do. They are investing in our kids. How many people do we know who, are, who, who need someone to come alongside them and invest in their children also? How, how many couples in here who have, who've, who've been able to, to do life with other couples, who've been encouraged uh, by other couples, who know couples who are struggling, who could, who could use godly accountability? And we don't say anything. We just, we just watch them struggle, and we are more concerned about ourselves. We're more concerned about things going right for us. And, I, and, I, and I'm afraid that church can be so good that we don't want to do anything to mess it up. Like, we don't want to invite certain folks up in here because they may, they may bring some issues we don't want to deal with. Seriously. They may bring some, some, some stuff that, that I just don't, I'm just not prepared to go there with them. And because we are concerned about um, our, our holy huddle, Thea, we're concerned about uh, protecting Wakanda. If you haven't seen the movie, you won't get that. If you, don't even worry about the illustration. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, but we're so concerned about protecting here that we look past needs that are in our community. So when we look at John chapter number four, the first thing we see, we see how Jesus approaches the woman. Verse four says, and he had to pass through Samaria. When the text said he had to pass through Samaria, Samaria, it's reminding us that Jesus was operating based upon a divine appointment. We got to understand that in the context, there were several routes that Jesus could have taken to get to Samaria. He could have went along the coast. He could have went through the region of, of Perea. But he said he had to go through Samaria. Now, I don't have time to go all the way through this, but if you go through the Old Testament, you'll see back in 720 B.C., when the Assyrians came in and raided the northern kingdom of Judah, they carried away most of the Israelites, but there was a small remnant that was left. 
this small remnant that was left ended up intermarrying with a group of people called the Babylonians. Uh, the, the, the remnant of Jews who were left behind and the Babylonians who intermarried had kids and their offspring uh, were, were referred to as Samaritans. Historically, uh, this, there is a rift between the Jews and the Samaritans, the full-blooded Jews and the half-blooded Jews, the, the, the racially pure Jews and the racially uh, intermingled Jews. And because of the rift between the Jews and the Samaritans, uh, they really did not mix. Jesus says, I have to go through Samaria uh, because he had to do something uh, to, to address uh, the issue of race in the text. Now, early in, the, in, the, in my series, as I was studying, I was like, ooh, I wonder what people are going to think because I said we shouldn't live life based upon I have to. We got to live life based upon I get to, right? In the text, Jesus says, I have to, right? Just because we need the mindset of I get to, I get to worship, I get to take care of my family, does not replace that there are some things in our life that we have to do. In the text, Jesus says, I have to go through Samaria because if he had went any other place, he would not have been able to minister to the Samaritan woman. If he did not minister to the Samaritan woman, then we would not get a powerful example of how we should address race from a biblical perspective. When you look at uh, the, the issues with the Samaritans and the Jews... It's really a reminder that the issue of race has always been an issue that has divided people. Um, it, it, we would be foolish to think that racism began in America. Racism is certainly present in America. It's certainly ingrained in our history. It's certainly tied to our story. But racism did not start in America. Racism goes back to the biblical story. Now, since racism goes back to the biblical story, we got to ask ourselves, how does God respond to racism in the scripture? Because it gives us a model for how we are to respond to racism today. When you look at uh, Christ and how he, he responded to the issue of race, he says, I have to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment and he wanted to communicate that he was willing to cross racial lines because of a spiritual need. Let me say that again. Jesus is willing to cross a racial line because of a spiritual need. He said he had to go through Samaria because he was focused on a spiritual need more so than a cultural difference. Jesus did not let his cultural bias get in the way of his spiritual responsibility. I want to say it again. Jesus did not let his cultural bias or his racial bias get in the way of his spiritual responsibility. He wouldn't allow race to get in the way. He wouldn't allow religion to get in the way. When Jesus speaks to the woman, he speaks to her because he wanted us to know that the gospel transcends every possible barrier that we may face in our life. I think it's amazing that we, that we are still, in 2018, struggling with race. We're struggling with racism. We're struggling with prejudice. We're struggling with, as a Christian, how am I to respond in a way that honors God? As a Christian, like, what should I do? You have people like John MacArthur, who I totally disagree with, uh, release statements about uh, how the gospel, uh, he says that the integration of social justice and the gospel is the greatest attack to the church today. I think that is a lie. I think that is, that is wrong. 
I really do believe when you think about the gospel and when you think about what Christ desires for us, we got to understand that even from Genesis, God's vision was every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The, the vision was never for us to be separate. The vision was, was for us to be together. And in the text, you look at Jesus, what he's doing is he's saying, I have a divine appointment because there was no other place that he could have ministered to that woman. So first you see Jesus, you see Jesus, uh, you see how he approached her. But secondly, you see why he approached her. Verse five says, so he came, um, he came to uh, Samaria called Sychar uh, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. This is a significant story or a significant name mentioned in the text. Jacob um, is one of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. And when you think about what Jesus does, he meets her at the place of agreement. Jesus is going to get to sin. He's going to get to her having uh, more than one husband. But before he got to the sin issue, he made a decision to connect with her. Meeting at, the, at Jacob's well allowed them to, to agree about something. He met her where she was. He did not wait on her to come to the temple. He did not wait on her to come to the synagogue. He did not wait on her to come to him. But Jesus met her exactly where she was. He met her at the place of agreement. He met her at a place where he could speak to her and address her as a person. I, I love the text because when you look at it, Jesus in verse 5, it says that he is wearied from his journey, but he's still willing to meet with the woman. He was tired, but he wasn't too tired to share the truth. He, he, was, he, was, he was tired, but he wasn't too tired to meet with the person. He was, he was weary, but he was not so weary that he could not share with a person about eternal life. Verse 7 says, the woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. It's amazing to me how the creator of the earth, the creator of water, is asking for a drink of water. The God who had just turned water from wine two chapters earlier is not asking for a drink of water. The one who caused the water to come out of the rock in the Old Testament is now asking uh, for water from the woman. I I love the passage because he takes a moment to connect with her. He takes a moment to engage in conversation with her. He doesn't talk at her, he talks to her. He does not preach at her, he finds a place of agreement so that they can have a great conversation. And thirdly, here's the point I really wanna deal with. First, we see why Jesus approaches the well. We see how Jesus, I'm sorry, we see, we see how Jesus approaches the woman. We see why Jesus approaches the woman at the well. But thirdly, and most importantly, we see how Jesus offers her living water. When you think about the passage, it's super important for us to see that when Jesus spoke to her, he spoke to her sincerely. I love Sean. He says that he, he, he focused on the person, not the project. Like so many times when we leave the building, we can see people as projects for us to improve. Like we're going to change their life. We're going to save them. We're going to change them. We're going to do things for them. But people are not projects. People are people. Jesus speaks to her with sincerity because he knew that she had a soul. Verse 9 says, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. 
How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. In the text, Jesus doesn't introduce himself as a Jew. The, the disciples are gone, so they don't tell her that he was a Jew. So from context, we can assume that it was evident that Jesus looked like a Jew, he spoke like a Jew, he acted like a Jew. And although he spoke like a Jew, acted like a Jew, though he was Jewish, though he was culturally different than her, he was still able to connect with her. I want to say this, and I want you to hear this very clearly. As we look to do ministry outside of the four walls of this church, you don't have to change who you are. Like, God is not expecting you to transform into uh, the, the Bible evangelist to win people. But God wants to use who you are to share the story of hope for other people. So many times we, we think that, well, we've got to change who we are. We've got to uh, create this big production. We've got to bring them to speak to the pastor. But that's just not the truth. One of my favorite pastors says this way. He says, what God is expecting is not for black people to be more white or white people to be more black or Asian people to be more Latino or Latino people to be more Asian or rich people to be more poor or educated, educated people to be more uneducated. What God is expecting is that we become more like Christ. And the more we become like Christ, the more we are able to meet people where they are. Verse 10 says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She talked about race, but Jesus wanted to speak about her relationship with God. He took what was common, which was the water at the well, and he turned the conversation into a relationship about a relationship with God. He turned the conversation into something where he could specifically tell her that the need that you are looking for, that the need that you are in desperate search of is a need that only I can meet. Verse 13 says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the, of the water that I will give him or her will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him or her will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to, the, to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman said to him, I have no husband. The Lord tells her about the wonderful gift of salvation. He tells her that it's a permanent gift. He tells her it is a fulfilling gift. But before she could receive the gift, she had to deal with sin. Now, here's the part where we get a little uncomfortable, right? Why didn't Jesus just invite her? Why didn't Jesus just throw his arm around her? Why would Jesus have to call her out about her sin? Because here's the truth. Until we deal with sin, we cannot have a relationship with God. Now, now, so many times we want to start with the sin issue. We want to start with out the gate, pointing the finger. Now, here's, we, we, we got to get to a place where we talk about sin now. P please do not hear me saying that we need to skate over unrighteousness. But it was after he connected with her. It was after he spoke to her. It was after he had a place of agreement with her that he began to speak about sin. 
He tells her what he is offering is a free gift, but before she could receive the gift, she had to consider how she had been sinning in her life. Uh, when, we, when we first considered uh, buying this church, uh, several people were worried about the building. Uh, I can remember uh, bringing some folks over here, and um, I got a couple emails about uh, not buying the building, and uh, it was too bad. It was just um, too much mold. Uh, I was challenged that if we made this purchase, we were going to put people's health in risk, and, you know, I still have the emails. I still look at them often. Because when I look around, I'm like, praise God, okay? We came to the building, and we obviously saw that there were major needs here, right? And we got with several contractors to assess the building, and we got them to put in bids to address what needed to be changed. It was evident to us that after we got so many bids, uh, we needed to demolish part of the building. Uh, the foyer area that we, we enjoy now was actually an old house. Actually, it was two houses that were kind of piecemeal together. Um, unfortunately, um, the, the roof was a flat roof, and it had so many leaks that it had, um, had some extensive uh, mold damage. And it was kind of ironic that it was more expensive to take care of the mold than it was to just knock it down and build something over, right? So we made a decision. Uh, to, to demolish it. The other church, for whatever reason, had gotten to a place where they just couldn't address the mold. They would paint over it. Uh, they would uh, kind of mask it. Uh, they had gotten to a place where they, had, um, they were not using certain rooms because the mold was just so bad. And when I think about the issue of mold, when I think about the issue that the previous building had, it's a reminder of what sin does to our life. When you think about sin, it slowly creeps into our life. And some of us, we want to try to, we don't want to address the sin. We don't want to address the rebellion because that's what sin is. Sin is rebellion to God. Anytime we sin, we're saying no to God and yes to Satan. So let's just use the word rebellion instead of sin. I think it's a, it's a weightier word, right? So anytime we are rebelling against God, we, we get to a place where we want to just try to throw some paint on it. We want to cover it up. We want to mask it up. We want to put on our Sunday's best. We want to put on what looks right. We want to put on the mask. We want to tell people everything's great. We don't want to address the issues. And here's the thing about sin. Sin does to our lives what it did to the building. It destroys it from the inside. And on the outside, things can look really good. On the outside, things can look really great. But internally, we can be falling apart. We, we need to allow the Lord to change us from the inside out. We need to allow, allow the Lord to mold us. We need to allow the Lord to transform us. And we need to allow the Lord to ultimately empower us to do and be what he's called us to do. So when we think about ministry to the community, number one, we've got to think about it from the perspective of this is not something that's optional. We have to leave this building and we have to tell people about Jesus. When we leave this building, though, we need to meet people at the place of connection, the place of agreement. Like leaving here fussing and cussing at people and like 
yelling at folks and all that is not going to be successful. It's not going to work. Let me know how that works out for you, right? <laughs> but when we meet people and speak to them with sincerity and honesty, when we, pl- when we place ourselves in situations where we connect with people who are far from God, it gives us opportunities to turn conversations back to Christ. The, the lady wanted to talk about race. Even later on, she wanted to talk about religion. But Jesus used the conversation to talk about a relationship with God. And that's what we're essentially doing with evangelism. We want to tell people, what does it mean to have a real, growing relationship with Christ? And thirdly, when we, when we speak to them, we got to get to the issue of sin. I, I was at a church and um, there was an invitation given and the invitation was, hey, if you want to be better, hey, if you want to change your life, if you want to be happier, if you want financial freedom, if you want all these things, just come and pray a prayer. And it broke my heart because, A, that ain't the gospel. And B, the gospel doesn't promise all that other foolishness that you're talking about, right? So when we, when we share the gospel, we must share from the perspective of there is an issue inside of all of us called sin. And because of sin, we have broken relationship with God. But because God loves us, he has sent his son to die for us in our sins in our place. And a relationship with God begins when we surrender, when we accept the payment that was paid on our behalf. So when we share the gospel, we can't just uh, give half the story. We need to preach the full counsel of truth. Chris, come on up. We'll, We'll close this way today. Three very simple applications, and I'm done. As we consider our lives the first thing we need to be reminded of is that we are all in need of the same thing spiritually. It's a good word for us because it's easy for us to think that because I'm not sinning like somebody else, I'm not doing what other people are doing, that I'm better than them. Like Christians, we can be some of the most prideful, arrogant, snobbish people in the world. Because we think that because we come to church on Sunday and because we're not sinning like them, we're better than them. And that is a lie from the pits of Satan. Secondly, we must always be committed to allowing spiritual needs to come before racial or cultural differences. I am a black man. It's not hard for y'all to see that, right? I went to Morehouse College. I have three black boys. I have a beautiful black daughter. I'm married to a beautiful black woman. I'm thankful that the Lord made me black. I enjoy being who I am. I'm very comfortable in the skin that God gave me. But I cannot allow that to become more important than the gospel. I can't allow that to become more significant than what Christ has accomplished. So while I'm thankful that the Lord has blessed me to be an African-American man in this country, I'm also thankful that the Lord has placed people who are not like me in my life thankful that the Lord allows me to do life with people who are different than me, who have a different perspective than me, and how I can learn from them and they can learn from me because ultimately we are a part of God's family. And lastly, well actually before that, when you think about heaven, it's important for us to remember that heaven is a place where we will all be different, but a place 
where we refuse to be separate. I think that's what church should be. Everybody in here is different on some level, but we won't be separate because God has called us to be together. And then thirdly, spiritual needs must become a priority that we fervently pray for. I can hear somebody saying, well, Pastor, man, I invited, I invited people to church. I, you know, told my friends about Jesus. And I think that's great. I hope you invite people. I hope you share the gospel with people. But I hope that that is secondary to you praying for people. One of the things that we're going to be doing um, coming up is going out into the community. And one of the ways that you can practically participate is A, you can come and you can knock on doors and you can share, but you can also pray. You can pray that the Lord would remove uh, boundaries to people believing. You can pray that the Lord would raise up people inside of our church who will be understanding of the gospel. You can pray that God will give us boldness and that God would allow us to be, to be led by his spirit. As we pray, we're not praying for things that are going to bless us, but we're praying for things that are going to make us a blessing in our community. I'm to the point now where I don't want to just be blessed, but I want the Lord to make me a blessing to people. People inside of this church, but also people who are outside of this church. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for all that you do in our lives. I pray that you help us to continue to wrestle with who we have been called to be as a church body. God, it's encouraging to me what you've done in our body. God, but I pray specifically that you would do greater things. That you would allow us to see more people changed and transformed. That people who are far from you people who are living in death will see life. And also, God, we want to pray for people who are believers but who don't have a church family. God, I pray that you would bring some folks home. God, so that they would not be tempted to do life by themselves. And as the band sings and they give our dismissal, I pray that we will continue to honor you and continue to wrestle with what are you calling us to do. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.